0: All right, folks. Welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. This is episode 144. Tonight, Andrew and I have a little special guest. Uh, we have Andy Schuller with us tonight. Andy is a regular contributor to the blog that Andrew started, uh, e-investing for beginners podcast a while ago. And so we're going to talk to Andy today about some of his ideas about personal finance. We thought we would go off topic a little bit and maybe move away from coronavirus and all the death, doom and despair that's out there and maybe guys give you guys some refreshing news and something that's good and fun that's going on out in the world. So Andy, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you've been, what you're doing, kind of how you got started all that kind of fun stuff.
2: Yeah, sure thing. Uh, first of all, I want to say thanks for having me on. I'm happy to talk about this. Like you said, I've been, I've, I've written quite a few blogs, so it's it's kind of exciting to get back to the basics with all the coronavirus stuff going on. You know, you can kind of look at your personal finance, something you have a little bit more control over than than what you might have in the market at all times. But so, like you said, I've been doing this for a little while. Um, just a little background about myself. I've kind of you know been through all different all different areas of life, especially when it comes to personal finance. I think I I could probably write a uh, almost a book on all the the mistakes you don't want to make. I mean, I've opened credit cards in college and maxed them out, you know, with the sole purpose of not having to to work uh, work a job while I was in school. Um gone through times where, you know, I've cashed out a four hundred one K or gotten a four hundred one K loan and, you know, everyone talks about how those are probably one of the, the worst things that you want to do. But Really, just gone through a lot of trials and tribulations throughout my time of, you know, learning mistakes uh, or making mistakes, trying to learn from them. And my my investing journey, I'll say, didn't really fully kick off until, oh man, probably twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen. I'm trying to think; it was it's a few years ago. But it was actually you know listening to this podcast and a few other podcasts. So it definitely feels full circle to be able to come on and share some of my stories after after posting on the blog for so long.
3: Dan, yeah, thanks. Thanks for joining us. Like, um, it's been incredible to see the evolution of how you've contributed and how it's really taken off. And like your posts just get a ton of traffic from people all around the world. That's super cool to see. And, um, I really admire like the way you, you're, you're, you're such a go getter. The, the way that you started writing for me is you actually reached out to me and, uh, wanted to see if I needed any help uh, with, with content and things of that nature. So I think hearing your mistakes is something that's very illuminating um, coming from somebody who is kind of just going to go out there and, and just, you know, make things happen for yourself. I think a lot of us, uh, whether consciously or not, you know, as we're navigating through life and our personal finances really need to, at some point in our life, really take the reins and get those things under control when it comes to personal finances, because they have huge implications. I think there's just a lot of things that we don't really think about when it comes to personal finance that really can have a huge, huge impact on the rest of our life and, and whether we have a possibility to go through to financial freedom or not. So you know, for you, you mentioned the credit cards, maxing those out. I can relate with that. And the 401k loan, uh, you also mentioned how you really got interested and started kind of taking the reins yourself in 2017, 2018. So what was it that kind of pushed you towards that? And were there any additional mistakes you made along the way that you think you wish you Didn't make it. Maybe somebody could learn from it, um, as they go through and, and try to take control of their finances.
2: You know, I don't want to say mainstream or simple, but it's really compound interest. And when you see that, if you, you know, put a thousand dollars in the stock market and you can earn, you know, 10% into it just by investing, you know, into like an S and P index fund, you know, including your dividends, you know, you after your first year you're gonna have your your initial thousand dollars plus the ten percent earned, so you're gonna have eleven $1, hundred bucks. The next year after that you're gonna end ten percent on that whole eleven $1, hundred. So it's just it's just continuing to build on top of the interest that you earned the previous year. So, you know, while the 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 return is absolutely I mean imperative, time is equally and almost more important. I mean, depending on how much time you have, you know, the further you you pull out those Various scenarios and you look at time, it's like compound interest kind of just smacks you in the face. And it, that's, that's really what, what got me focused on investing. It's like I was in, I was living in Chicago trying to save for an engagement ring for my wife. Um, you know, we were trying to plan to pay for, you know, a good part of a wedding. Uh, we knew in the next couple of years, we were going to have to move for my job and that would, we wanted to buy a house. So we knew that was going to require a significant down payment. All like I said, living in the city in Chicago, we weren't, weren't exactly saving a lot of money. We were, you know, kind of trying to make the most of it. So I was trying to find ways to be more efficient with my money. Um, and it seemed like the market was definitely it, not necessarily for the short term, but I felt like if I could do, you know, invest well, it would set me up for the long term, which then would ideally be able to set me up, you know, indirectly for the short term as well. And it was, I'll be honest, it was incredibly terrifying getting started you know, I had no idea what I was doing. Didn't even know what to do. I, I vividly remember the first company I ever bought. I just Googled what are the best cheap stocks to buy now. And It was like a list of like five companies and I ended up buying one and, you know, I didn't, you know, it, it really didn't matter. It was like a hundred bucks, but it was just, you know, how, how unanalytical that was compared to um, everything you guys teach on your podcast. So the more I was able to listen to the podcast and do my own research and understand stocks and utilize the value trap indicator that you created, Andrew. It's I felt like it's really kind of helped take away the, the fear of making mistakes. And I like hearing the story about how um, I initially reached out to you because the article I wrote, I, I don't know if you remember this, but this is truly what kickstarted my investing journey was. There's an article about how if you bought uh, into the S&P 500 at the highest point and then you sold at the lowest point five and 10 years out, so basically, buy high and sell low, the exact opposite of what they tell us to do, you're still making some pretty significant returns. I mean, you know, I'm, I, I honestly think that, that your five year returns like in the 40 to 50% range. And I think your 10 year returns were in the 80ish percent range, if I remember offhand. So, I mean, you're making significant returns basically doing the worst thing you can do as long as you hold on to it. And that's really what, what, you know, kind of kicked my butt in gear and said, okay, it's time to, time to get going.
3: Yeah. The power of compound interest, right?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right.
3: I like you had a um you had a po- a part of a post you did about compound interest on the blog. Um you named the section Convincing the Wife About Compound Interest. <laughs> Can you talk about that for a second? Because <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. I see this header and then re- like you go half a page down and I see like this really intense formula. <laughs> so um <laughs> go go ahead and please share.
2: It's it's like so she's I mean I think I think we're we're probably a perfect pair when it comes financially I'm very much like push the envelope let's get as risky as I can like pr- probably a little bit too much and, she, and she's very much the part of you know let's you know let's make sure we have cash let's make sure the emergency fund is you know not three months but six months you know let's make sure we can access it tomorrow if we need to and um, the first conversation we really even got into about this was, it was literally talking about um, opening up a high yield um, savings account with ally and the article you're, you're talking about uh, the interest rate was like 2.3% at the time versus my fifth third savings account. And I don't normally, you know, I, I don't normally want to, you know, c- call out, you know, someone in a bad way, but if I'm earning 0.01% interest, I don't mind saying that it was fifth third. But, um, <laughs> When even when I just compared a two point three percent interest compared to a point zero one percent, if you would just put ten thousand dollars into a you know, those two accounts over the course of thirty years, you're at almost twenty grand in my ally account and I'm at I've earned a total of thirty bucks a dollar a year in my fifth third account. So again, I know that's you know pretty small, but that was what what the big debate was where, you know, the the whole thing with ally for her is just, it's not instantaneous. You know, it's a few days removed if you truly ever did you know, need it for an emergency fund type situation. So it was kind of going through some of the math of that is, you know, how, how often does something like that happen? And is it, is it worth the potential gains? And it almost like laid the groundwork for some of our, some of our investing discussions as well.
3: Like, uh, can you give an example of, investing discussion that kind of led from that?
2: Yeah. I mean just like like in general, um like, you know, if you know, if we're at the end of the month and you know we have an extra two hundred bucks in the budget, what do we do with it? You know, do we do we hold on to it? Do we throw it in the savings account? You know, do we, you know, try to put it back into a Roth or just a brokerage account? Kind of just, just what's our mindset? Um <clears throat> again where I'm like, hey, every single penny saved let's throw it in the market and let, let her money go to work and um you know sh- she might be a little bit more willing to hold on to that money for a sure thing or you know pay down interest um or i'm sorry pay, yeah pay down like debt that has you know a higher interest and those are always the types of discussions that we'll have is you know if you got a three and a half or four percent loan does it make more sense to invest it in the market or or you know pay off that loan? Um, I think that's, I mean, that's an ongoing discussion that that we have, and I think it changes, especially like in today's market. But it's it's more more or less just. I think she's helped show me that you can't always chase return. Sometimes sure things are good. It's nice just to have a sure thing, and then I think I've opened her up a little bit too to show her the opposite.
3: Was this was a saying that a burn in the hands worth more than two in the bush?
2: Yeah, exactly right. I mean, exactly right. I I mean, I
3: I love how you mentioned having the data really helps to frame that discussion. And so, whether that's a discussion you're having with a spouse, or even like an internal discussion where you're trying to conceptualize what the options are, because I think that's that can be one of the hardest parts of either investing or figuring out what you're going to do with your money. Because there's so many opinions, there's so many uh, people with very strong debates on almost any topic that you could find and then you get somebody who's an absolute beginner and and they feel like um it's like well where do I go from here and so without any sort of path or or something to give you structure and and help you conceptualize what the difference in those options are um you really feel just kind of lost out there and so i think one reason why a lot of your blog posts have have uh, done so well is you always have that analytical approach that you talked about that we like to pound on the podcast. And so I know a lot of people listening also appreciate that type of approach. And something really fascinating about... you've You've made a lot of Excel spreadsheets that you've shared on the blog, and I think those have been really, really cool. Your big one that you've done recently with your budget Talk a little bit about that. Um, You have a category called CAH, I think it was, which I thought was something easy to remember. And then you have what I think is is really nice about what you did with your spreadsheet is you listed out a lot of expenses that a lot of people maybe won't account for. And so, there's a lot less chance that your budget goes overboard because of something that you forgot to to put in there. So, talk about that budget, that spreadsheet that you use personally, and some of the things that you've put on there that people can kind of think like, "Oh, maybe I should be thinking about that and planning for that too."
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This this budget tool—it's been something that's like it's been used by myself. I I just create it randomly in Excel um, back when I graduated college and then I've like refined it over the years and made it more complex, less complex. Um, really just trying to find the sweet spot. I've, I've gone through times where it's like, it's so in the weeds and in depth that I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even use it. And then sometimes it was too simple where I'd get to the end of the month and I felt like I didn't really, I still did not fully understand my expenses and really where my money was going. So I feel like I've, I've now after multiple years of refining this, that it's really at a a good point where it's it's very simple to use and it's very um very eye-opening so the the acronym you're thinking of it's g-a-c-h okay and sorry. sorry yeah yeah it's answer groceries animals and then cleaning house and i pronounce it gash because it just gashes my budget and it's all stuff (laughs) I hate buying. (laughs) I hate spending money on all of those things, (laughs) but it is almost always the highest category. Um, so it's, it's like a mental it's, it's typically the second thing I'll put on my budget right after a mortgage. Um, just, uh, just to keep it top of mind for me. But yeah. So, I mean, those are some of the things that, that I think of, but it's, um, You know, some, some of the other things you might not think of as I have, like, you know a a a trash, you know, if your trash is getting picked up um, books um, I, I very specifically outlined like alcohol at a store. And then I have like bars eating out um, (laughs) and dinner. And a lot of that originated from, I mean, that was my time like back when I graduated college, like those were, those were major expenses. And the reason I like to break those out is because it, I mean, it sounded ridiculous, but it's like when you're when you graduate college and then you get a job in your college hometown and a lot of your friends still live in the hometown, you're still kind of hanging out with those friends. So it's like, you know, almost the more that you spend at the store, the less that you're spending at the, the bars and eating out. So it was just a way to break it up for me to understand it better. Um, I have like home improvement projects. Budgeting um, was always a
0: challenge for me. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Nerd Wallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Um, That's cards. a good one.
3: Cause people, people like when they're buying a home, for example, they'll think about, okay, what are my payments? And then, you know, not thinking of how much am I going to pay to furnish this thing right? Like I'm going to have to get all new furniture. And then like you said, home improvements too. It's a never ending cycle. And so if you don't admit that that's got to be a part of your budget, you're kind of lying to yourself.
2: Yeah, exactly. And like, I mean, a a perfect example is if you, if you know, you have a repair coming up, um, say in the next, you know, six months and you think it's going to cost, you know, a thousand bucks, put, put $200 in your budget, like almost amateurize it, Put two hundred dollars in your budget for the next five or six months, and if it doesn't come that month, take that two hundred dollars that you had planned to put it there and throw it in your savings account, and just you know earmark it for when that expense does come. And I mean that's something I've tried to do. Or I mean, home improvement—it's like almost a steady, you know, couple hundred dollars a month because I know at some point, just like last year, at some you know our um, our air conditioning unit died, so it's like that was you know forty-five hundred bucks where. Ah. Yeah, two hundred dollars a month doesn't doesn't cover it, but it you know takes that forty five hundred dollar expense down to twenty five hundred, um, because I've just been just been planning ahead. So it's really just the the best thing that I could recommend for anyone to do is go. It's super simple. Um, if you buy most of your like if most of your expenses are online, whether it's a checking account or a credit card, you can go just to that that banking institution, download your expenses, and you can even just sort them by name and then you can see where your money's going. I mean if it's restaurant like just simply code it real quick. Is it restaurants? Is it, you know, is it is it gas? Is it the you're you're buying lunch at, at your your work every day. That's eight dollars, you know, eight dollars a day for lunch and you're spending forty bucks a week when instead you can pack your lunch and spend three dollars. Is it um are you, you know, every Every Friday and Saturday, are you are you renting a movie? or Are you going to the movies? So you're spending, you know, what twenty bucks a weekend going to the movies, and so eighty bucks a month. It's just stuff like that that people might not think about, and you don't really know until you actually dive into the numbers.
3: <clears throat> so where does debt fall into all of this? Because um, obviously, for a lot of people, they have different debt payments to deal with, and those are going to be various expenses how does that factor in and how does somebody get aggressive with paying debt down? You had another good article talking about the difference between the snowball method and the avalanche method. Um, and that can be kind of a controversial thing. So what did you find from your research there and how can people think about debt in their budget?
2: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's, that's honestly one of the um something that kind of still really, I don't want to say it gets to me, but I I love talking about it with people and I've, I've changed my opinion. Like it almost goes back to the conversations with myself and my wife, because she was always a, a debt snowball person and I was a debt um, avalanche person. So the debt snowball method is really defined by um, Dave Ramsey, where essentially you start with your lowest payment first. So just whatever that lowest, um, Whatever your lowest outstanding balance is and put all extra money you can towards that, uh, towards that payment. And once you get that paid off, then essentially you can shift all of that money that you're putting towards that payment and put it on the next lowest. So basically the concept is you're, you're starting small. And as that snowball rolls down the hill, it'll kind of pick up speed and momentum. And by the end of it, you know, you might have had five payments, four of them were paid off. So now you have all all of this extra money that's going towards your last payment. So the, you know, the red flag in my eyes, as I said, I'm a very analytical person with that is that chances are your lowest debt um, is also not your lowest interest. It might be, but mathematically speaking, you should always pay off your lowest interest first, regardless of what your balance is. Um, so, I, I went through an article and kind of showed showed how that might work if you're gonna pay off, you know, some, you know, the the two different methods and the one I showed with the snowball method. Um and in turn you would pay off um you know, you, you'd end up paying like an extra like twelve hundred dollars on your twenty-two thousand dollars of debt and it'd just be an extra month over if you paid the avalanche method. Now you know the, the only thing I'll say with that is I, I recognize that not every person is analytical, and I think people do get motivated by different things. So if you're the type of person that um, if you're just going to stick with the highest interest loan and you're not going to get motivated and be able to stick to the plan, then maybe the the debt snowball method for, is actually for you. It's It kind of goes back to I, I had a personal trainer when I was in college, and they always said the best diet plan is the one you'll stick to. I kind of feel it's the same exact way with paying off your debt.
1: Hey, you. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's free ebook at stockmarketpdf.com. You won't regret it. Yeah, it
3: exactly goes to what you're saying, whether you're analytical or you want to be somebody who is fine with not optimizing your interest rates, so to say, you know, because if that's overwhelming to you, then maybe it's simpler to just take a snowball method and kind of run with it.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I I think it really just depends on how that person is wired and what's going to make you motivated, um, to pay it off. I mean, the, you know, I, I, I can sit here and look at the numbers all I want, but you know, something that's not taken into account is if someone that's a debt, a snowball minded person tries the avalanche method and they end up falling off halfway through and that debt, you know, inflates right back to where it was. So it's, it's really just about knowing yourself and, Um, how you can motivate yourself to get there.
3: Yeah, it it makes sense. I I feel like you presented them fairly. You broke out like a good example of some loans that people could have and um, how that would play out mathematically. (laughs) Let's um, let's zoom out a little bit and talk about maybe the end goal and, and what that could look like. I think when we talk about personal finances, we talk about investing you want to eventually get to a place where, if you have this sort of financial freedom, um, the ideal spot of that is to be in a place where your money, you can withdraw some money, but still have enough money left over to continue growing. And so you're essentially supporting yourself indefinitely with the money you've <laughs> saved and invested over the years. And so there's a lot of opinions on how much money that needs to be. And for me personally I felt that it was nice to obviously when you project something out even if it's more than a couple of days in the future um the actual accuracy of any sort of projection like that will be probably skewed quite a bit but in my mind it was nice to conceptualize what a good goal number would be and realize it's you, you don't have to have 3 million dollars or 10 million dollars to retire um you can have a sustainable financial um financial state with um not that much money. Uh so there's different percentages and, and one that's quoted quite often in the personal finance rule is the four percent rule. So talk about what you found on your research with the four percent rule and um how that can apply to the average investor.
2: Sure yeah the so the four percent rule is basically um you know if if you were to withdraw four percent of whatever you had invested in the market every year that you would never run out of money in essence that's that's kind of how how the rules functioned um i the there's there's so many conflicting opinions on that um and whether it's actually right or wrong whether you should you know be more conservative or Um, you know, is what, you know, what, what sort of investment mix do you have? Is that just putting it, you know, into like an S and P 500 fund? Is that all in bonds? Is it a mix? So I, I just wanted to dive in a little bit. And so I ran two different scenarios. I went all the way back to 1928, um, which is the furthest back. I get information just on the S and P 500. And the first, uh, scenario is just using a hundred percent stock. So if you only invested in the S and P 500, if you were to um use the four percent rule so basically pulling out four percent of your income every year if you started in 1928 you would have ran out of money pretty quick um 1944 but if you would have started any time after that so if you would have started in 1940 you would still currently have not run out of money at this point in time so it seems like the at the 100 percent stock rule um or hundred percent stock portfolio that the 4% rule actually could be pretty valid. Now I say that Sorry, with so a,
3: 19, four, when you say the 1940s, <laughs> that's when you start taking the money out. Is that correct? You started in 1928, right? So you're saying,
2: yep. Yeah. So, so I ran, so I started in 1928. If you would, you know, pull up 4% every year, you would run out in 1944. Okay. Um, if you would have started in 1940, you would not have run out at this point. Huh? So, okay. so I, I broke it down. So I have different categories. So I have like 1928. We'll show you um, when you'd run out. And then I do pretty much every 10 years after, if you would start investing on January 1st of 1940, January 1st of 1950, 1960, and so on and so forth, just to kind of show you how, how things have trended. Um, but, I mean it, it basically just takes into account. So like if you would have invested in nineteen twenty eight, the reason you would have ran out so quickly is, you know, the Great Depression. So could that could that happen again? Of course, it absolutely could happen. I mean, especially now if you look at the times we're in right now with the coronavirus, it's it's certainly a scary times. So, you know, you, you might go back and look at the four percent rule and go, Yeah, it probably would have worked, but with a hundred percent stock allocation, but um, there's definitely definitely a little bit of cause for concern. Um, so then I did the exact same thing, but instead of doing it, uh, with a hundred percent, and P 500 portfolio, I did 60% S P five and P 500 and 40%, uh, bonds. And if you would have invested that in 1928, you would never have run out of money. You would still be sitting there, um, with money right now today. Um, you know, nearly a hundred years later. So. I think all in all through the
3: great depression, you know, through the the worst case scenario kind of thing.
2: Yep. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, there's definitely some scary times in there. I mean, there's when, when I go through year by year, I mean, you can see some of those balances can get pretty dang low and it might start making you nervous. Um, it's, it's definitely, definitely a scary time. So I think a lot of that, you know, too, comes again on knowing yourself, like if you're actually going to implement a rule like this, you need to understand the numbers when you go into it and trust the process and not be willing to sell low. I mean, if you would have implemented the four percent rule three years ago, you probably would have been really happy until January or you know early February. So if you're gonna you you're you're kind of putting a whole bunch of trust in it, but I think you know from looking at my data, it's like the four percent rule truly does work as long as you can utilize it properly. And I, I feel like this, the the sixty forty allocation is the appropriate allocation there
3: to to have those kind of findings and f- really to where where else are you going to get a situation where you can take money out but yet still also have your money not only s- stay there but like continue to grow right. too and then now it's it's like this well-oiled machine and it's like this big closed system feeding back on itself and uh, you know, some leaves and you spend it and s- some gets reinvested and then it continues growing over time. I think we all like to live very long times. Maybe a lot of us won't live as long as we hope. But just to have a really good shot with something like the 4% rule, I think that's really motivating, at least to me, to hear that if you get to a certain point with your finances, you have a good chunk of money saved and you're continuing to invest that you can start to take out some of the fruits of that labor while everything's still running in the background and still sustaining you and giving you that income that where you
0: don't have to depend on any other income. And I, I think to, to tag on what Andrew was saying too, as somebody who's older, uh, that gives me comfort too because one of the things that I'm afraid of is what happens to me As I, you know, live longer, you know, because I'm closer to retirement than the both of you are. And so I have a chance of living till I'm 90, 95 years old. And, you know, my parents didn't, you know, my mom's still alive, but my dad died a few years ago or last year, I'm sorry. And so, you know. That's one of the concerns I have is what, what if I run out of money, you know? Cause when you're 75, 80 years old, you don't want to be begging groceries at Walmart. So, uh, no, I sure don't. So, you know, that those kinds of numbers make me feel better about what my plan is and what I'm trying to do. Yeah. I'd, I'd, Sorry, go ahead. I,
2: I was just gonna say, I, I totally agree. And I think like it has a ton of use really, no matter where you are in life, you know, Dave, like you're saying, it's, it's truly like you can really start putting math to it and really start planning out your life. And I think for the new investor that might just be really getting going is you can kind of almost backtrack into that and figure out, okay, what, what's, what's the end goal? What do I need to get to? Well, what am I doing all this for? And I mean, it's as simple as taking what you envision when, when you're ready to, to retire and stop putting money in. You know, what, what do you think your annual expenses are going to be and if you multiply that by 25, then you're able to essentially get to that, that needs to be your retirement number based off this 4% goal. So I think it, regardless of where you are, there's such a great use for it as long as you're using the 4% rule properly. And, you know, it's nothing more than a rule of thumb, but like you said, I, th- I really do think it can provide some peace and comfort when trying to plan your life and investing strategy
3: and that's just setting the the standard too like if if you look at the posts you did um people could do 5% and 6% withdrawal rates and depending on what time period you happen to fall in um though even at that high of a withdrawal rate those you know those test case situations still ended up in the same place where the money was able to continue indefinitely um, and so when you have instead of a 4% or a 5%, a 5% or 6%, when you play with the percentages, it's gonna play, it's gonna change how much you have to save to get there. And so I think that can be really encouraging too, that it's like, hey, you know, you don't have to, A, you don't have to get to this perfect, ideal, self-sustaining machine forever, or, you know, you could get close and still do really, really well and, um, have really, really nice, benefits from all of that just because you you put your money to work and and you put yourself in a place that's so much better than than you were before so now going back to your tool that you use andy um and hopefully it doesn't gash you as much as it makes you feel good uh where where do you put investing in that you make a line for that do you kind of take the whatever the excess is after you've done the budget um what what does that look what does that process look like Uh, how often are you going to this budget and how are you um, putting stuff in and how does that help you with your investing goals?
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's all all kind of, um, you know, backtrack to when I had a lot of debt at first and I was just starting to try to look at investing. It was, I would, my, my first strategy going in was, you know, let's, let's take care of, you know, all these bills and all these expenses I have and whatever's left over at the end. Um, You know, let's, try to put that money to work in the market, whether it's an IRA at that point in time or anything else. And what I noticed is that I didn't usually have a lot of money left over. Usually I was blowing it on something stupid. Um, I never really had anything left that would really do a whole lot when I, when I put it in the market. So I almost tried to flip it on its head and treated exactly like it's a, like it's a line item expense where it just comes, you know, straight out of my paycheck, goes right into my Fidelity account. And I don't have a line item in there, but I, I feel like, um, you know, as an, as an investor, if someone was using the, the doctor budget tool, they certainly could put that as a line item in there. Because honestly, when, when you are looking at your expenses at the end of the month, that, that would classify as an expense, but it feels good feels good to put in there that you're going to invest 150 bucks and that you actually did put $150 in there. and That will show, like I said, as a charge, but I mean, you're, you're you're going to be happy to put that in. That's not something you you want to cut out of your budget. So I think it's very important for us to pay ourselves first and, and take a look at um, our investing goals. And I guarantee that if you, if you're not, if you feel like you can invest, I know for a fact that I could probably find a way to cut your budget down um, to be able to generate that extra income or, you know, a side hustle, maybe it's driving Uber for a couple hours, or, I mean, there's, there's so many, so many different things you can bike into work and save you on gas money. I and mean, there's so many different options. Pretty much every Sunday, I'll, I'll them look up stuff or I'm like, you know, what's, what are some, some $2 meals? I'll challenge myself to make lunch for myself for the whole week for 10 bucks. You know, if I normally spend 30 or 40. Okay. There's another $25. I just saved in a week. Do that four times You're at a hundred dollars you can invest. So I think the important thing is to not, not save the leftover for investing, but make it a priority right up there with any of your other fixed expenses, like your mortgages and um, any other debts that you might have that don't change from month to month.
3: So the way you use the doctor budget tool, personally, you have your regular expenses and then let's say you go all the way down to the bottom and then you had like a 200 surplus. So you're taking that surplus and then like you said, you're transferring it over rather than putting it on the line item kind of thing.
2: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's exactly right. I would, I would, I would take that extra money and transfer it over. Um, You, you could put a line item if you want, just to make your, your budget round out. But you know, it's something I've been, I've been toying with and, I intend to, to add multiple more iterations to the doctor budget spreadsheet tools, creating a, like a variable spending tracker. Um, so you, you might have your fixed expenses, but it, it'd be a way for you to compare just month to month, what your, your variable expenses are. So um, I think by doing that, it can motivate you to spend less on the stuff that changes day to day and therefore create that surplus at the end to be able to, to transfer into your account.
3: Yeah. And sorry, I might've missed what you said. How often are you, you going through? Um, And like, so what's nice about the tool, the doctor budget tool that you made, Um, a lot of the things are listed out for you. So things that you wouldn't even think of, you have the line item there and people can just fill in what that personal expense is. Um, So how often are you updating that? And then... Is it at the end of the month you just take whatever's left and then transfer that? How does that work?
2: Yeah. So I, I personally will update it uh, weekly. And the reason that I'll do it that often is because a lot of my expenses are kind of broken out like week to week. So whether it's like eating out or groceries, we pretty much buy groceries once a week. So if I'm planning, you know, $400 and there's four weekends, that's, I'll, I'll update that because if I, I, I want to know if I spin over, I want to know, Hey, I got to make it, make it up one of the next three weeks and spend under. And if, if you wait until the end of the month, I mean, you're, if you're over, you're over. You don't have any time to make it up. You don't have anything else you can cut. You just kind of got to hope you can do something different the next month when I'm much more of a, um, you know, plan, readjust, check and, you know, update, um, give yourself a chance to fix the mistake. It almost be like, playing a football game and you don't look at the scoreboard until the, you know, the game's over. Like I'd like to be able to make a halftime adjustment or something if, if things aren't shaping up. So I personally will update a, it, um, weekly, but I will never transfer money over until the end of the month. And that, that month is set in stone because, you know, just like I, I could have spent over the first month. Um, if I spent under then I transfer that money out. And then for whatever reason I had to spend over cause something might've come up then I don't want to be in, a, be in a bind at the last minute. So that's, that's in general, my process.
3: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And um, I I checked it out myself. I really liked how simple everything was to use. You don't have to be an Excel wizard to use it. Um, everything is just really nicely laid out there. So if you're somebody who kind of feels out of control with your finances, you feel like, You've just never known how to even get started when it comes to organizing all that stuff. Your tool is just a great, great, really investment tool to use. And if you can make it a part of your routine regularly, can be a great way to either... right, Two things are going to come out from this, right? Either you're going to figure out where you're blowing all your money. At least you'll know. And then the second thing is you could actually, you know, make those halftime adjustments like you're saying, and now you start to make progress that you weren't able to do before now that you've really gotten a handle on your money.
2: Yeah, I, I, I could not agree more. And I I think there's really like there's there's two things that I think makes the budget tool so beneficial. It's like one, it is very simple. And if if you're going just based on pure simplicity you know, a listener might sit there and I I know I would at least think, well, why don't I just use Mint or, you know, some other budgeting app? And you certainly can, but um, you know, I, I would definitely say that's easier. But I think the most important thing, if you ever want any sort of like number based result is tracking. And this tool, while it's very easy, when you download your transactions, it'll force you to go in there and be like, okay, look, $8 at McDonald's, code that as eating out $15 at, um, you know, sheets, I bought gas or, you know, $4 at sheets. I bought a Mountain Dew and, you know, a bag of Skittles or like, it forces you to physically go in and code each item. So you are seeing where your money is going. And then at the end of the month, you can see it all report. So when you're filling out, what all those expenses are, you probably know about what your budget's going to look like before you even see that, you know, the the final shape up at the very end. But I mean, if you think about it, like how hard it is to lose weight, unless you're tracking, you know, what you're eating, tracking your workouts, you're getting on the scale and seeing how you're performing. It's I kind of have a lot of I guess working out analogies when I think about it, but I I don't think there's any better way to actually be able to make true adjustments in your lifestyle regardless of what it is unless you're tracking that information.
3: 100%. I mean, that mindset sounds very familiar to another spreadsheet, I know. (laughs) Uh, It's just (laughs) something about having to go through and do it yourself rather than having some AI computer do it all for you. Something about that process, kind of like the old days where you used to balance a checkbook. You internalize that as you go through, and that really forces you to understand what's going on and make those adjustments. So I I really like this tool a lot. I think a lot of people, especially listeners on this podcast who have this, a lot of the same mindsets we do, can find it useful. Um, it's a $29 tool, could be something that saves you many, many multiples of dollars over your life as you use it. So how do people find it? And you know, what else what, what other parting words do you have for people?
2: Yeah, the so so they can find it if you go to the the doctorbudget.com. com. Um, it'll take you right there and uh, you'll be able to fill out your information and and download the the actual spreadsheet. Um, like you said I I truly think this can save you save you tons of time and, and money throughout your life. I mean, I've, I've gone through times where I was legitimately too scared on weekends to open up my bank account. So I've, I, you know, to being in a place where I feel like I could, you know, pretty much budget without really even, even looking at it. Um, and I, I really do truly attribute it to this spreadsheet. It's really the only thing that stuck with me throughout this transformation and my own personal mindset and my personal finance lifestyle. And like I said, I, I do intend. I, I think I have quite a few different ideas of some iterations we can add. Um, um, you know, I've been thinking about like the variable spending tracker. Um, almost been thinking about trying to create a um, like a savings rate type tracker. You know, I think if you're in the fire fire community, the financial independence retire early. A lot of people will talk about what's your savings rate. So I think that that could be something that might be coming down the pike, but. Um, of course you'll, you know, everyone would be able to get any of those upgrades, but I highly recommend you check it out. It's, I can, I can honestly say that it, it has changed my life.
3: Yeah, I, I completely recommend it as well. Um, I like it how it is and I think it can be a very, very valuable tool. Just remember to put the in front of Dr. Budget, because if you go to drbudget.com, that's not going to work. So put the (laughs) drbudget.com and you'll be able to see it on there. You'll see that um, it's a product that I sponsor and something I believe that can help a lot
0: and a lot of people. All right, folks. Well, that is going to wrap up our discussion for this evening. I want to thank Andy for taking time out of his busy schedule to come talk to us today. And his tool sounds fantastic. I've actually been using it myself. So I give it a big thumbs up. And I totally agree with him. If you do not uh, plan to assess things and monitor things and track things you will not get success that is one of the big keys to success in just about anything and particularly in budgeting so without any further ado i'm going to go and sign us out if you guys are enjoying the show please give us a nice five star review it helps us go up in the rankings and we can help more people so without any further ado i'm going to go ahead and sign us out you guys have a great week and we'll talk to you next week
1: we hope you enjoyed this content seven steps to understanding the stock market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at eInvestingForBeginners.com With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.